We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. The title of this morning's sermon is God's People for God's Glory. Uh, one thing that the Lord has been reminding me over these last several weeks is that I so desperately need to be reminded of what is true and what is ultimate. We need to be reminded of what is true and what is ultimate. Over the past few weeks, we've considered God's pursuit of us in the parable of the prodigal son, or as we like to call it, the parable of the two lost sons. And we've considered Jesus as the older brother who should have been in the text, right? Who pursues his younger brother, who comes and brings him back into the family of a gracious and loving father. We've considered God's formation of us as a people last week in our sermon uh, on the five distinctives. The five distinctives of, are our way of thinking about what should be true of the church as a whole. We are a family of missionary servants. We've been baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are his children, we are his servants, and we are filled with his spirit to be his missionaries. We worship in forms that are distinctively Christian. We've been in a transformation over the last couple of years, a transformation that is ongoing to say, how can we appropriate truly Christian worship in our time and space? Meaning, how can the form of our service be more than just uh, four songs, three songs, and a sermon? But how can we come and corporately confess our sins, thinking about the story of God making all things new through Christ? How can we come and partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and the Lord's Supper? How can we come and gather and worship in forms that tell God's story and ultimately form us into God's story? We leverage our resources for the good of our neighbor. God has not called us to be an insular people, but we gather to build one another off to send one another out. We help plant new churches from new believers. And as you know, we're extensively involved on the west side of our city and in years to come in other neighborhoods and towns to plant new churches from new believers. And we must take the gospel to the nations. There are a billion people who have yet to hear the good news of Jesus, and we cannot sit idly by and twiddle our thumbs as that reality remains true. So we consider the sort of people that the church is, the sort of people that the gospel, the message of a God who pursues us and loves us, forms. This morning, to be reminded of what is true and what is ultimate, we return to the apostle Peter. In 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians largely from non-Jewish backgrounds in modern-day Turkey who would have experienced some sporadic persecution and general difficulty in their Christian lives. In the letter, he teaches about the nature of our salvation, the life of a Christian, and the way we should live it. He helps suffering and persecuted Christians embrace their persecution and their trials for the sake of Christ, looking forward to the day that Christ returns. The letter is so eschatological, and that big word just means it's oriented towards the end times. It's reminding God's people of what is true and what is ultimate. Yes, I know Nero and his cronies are persecuting you, but I remind you, church, Jesus reigns and Jesus will return. Ultimately, this morning, we'll focus on the reality that he reminds us that we are God's people created for God's glory. God's people created for God's glory. This sounds simple, and in one sense, it is simple. 
It's so simple, it's dangerously easy to check the I already know that box beside that position. It's easy to miss how foundational the concept that we are God's people created for God's glory really is. Our relationship with God is about God. Our religion, and that's not a word we should run from, that's a word we should embrace, because a religion is a systematic way of thinking about doctrine that forms our whole orientation to the world. Our religion is about God. Our salvation is about God. It is for God. Our whole lives, everything about us, from the way we interact with people in our church, the way we interact with people in our families and workplaces, the way we interact with ourself, everything about us should demonstrate to others how good our God is. As God's people living for God's glory, we must remember that we are not home until we're with God in the Garden City of Revelation. Let's look in the text in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Throughout the beginning part of the letter, Paul, or Peter is reminding the church of all they have in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's given us an inheritance that he is guarding for us. And not only is he guarding that inheritance, he's guarding us as we walk towards it. He says, the things that you're hearing from me, the gospel message, the message of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, this message are the things into which angels have longed to look. Therefore, be holy as God is holy. Represent God in all that you do. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow into maturity. You come to God through Jesus, and Jesus is the dividing line between those who are participating in the life of God and those who are not. We embrace Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected, and in our embracing of Jesus, we receive salvation. And in their turning from Jesus, they will receive judgment for their sins that they rightfully owe. Jesus is where the dividing line is between those who are in God and who are not. You, in verse 9 of chapter 2, we're bringing specificity. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Let's consider these nouns. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, this language is, is, is just loaded with Old Testament imagery. We just went through Exodus for a whole season of our church's life. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God is talking to Moses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a holy nation. 
Right, so there's this idea that God has promised Israel that they will be his treasured people, and this promise to Israel way back in Exodus is being fulfilled in the church. Even this language, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That language harkens back to Hosea chapters 1 and, and 2, where Hosea is told to go and marry Gomer and, and conceive a child and name it, not my people, and name it, no mercy. And then later he says, I will show mercy to no mercy, and I will make not my people, my people, right? This image is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. These are all collective words, race, priesthood, nation, people. The church in Peter's language is consistent with the rest of the New Testament in being identified as a corporate unity. This stands in stark contrast with the rampant individualism of our day. When the New Testament talks about the church, it's almost always, if not always, talking about some sort of corporate body a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we tend to think in terms of our own individuality. When we think about the bride of Christ, we think, oh, I'm the bride of Christ. Well, no, we as the church are the bride of Christ. Our individualism has obvious and many problems. It leads to rampant narcissism in so many ways. There are some benefits, of course, we're reminded that we matter, that God knows us, that God loves us, that God cares about us, that every man, woman, boy, and girl you meet is someone who God has created, who God loves, who has God's dignity. And every individual who calls on the name of Christ will be saved and joined to Christ's body. But nonetheless, the emphasis throughout the New Testament is on the corporate reality of the church. Let's see how he describes it with his adjectives. He says that we are chosen, that God has chosen us individually to be in the church and collectively to be his. We are able to choose God because God has chosen us. He says we are a royal priesthood. Ancient kings would have a sort of um, company of priests who would minister to them and minister for them. And, and we are like the ministers who ministers before the king for him and in front of him. We have access to the Almighty One. One of my favorite quotes is from Timothy Keller. And he says, no one can wake the king up at three in the morning except his child. No one can wake the king up at three in the morning except his child. And we have that kind of access to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It says we are a holy nation. This doesn't speak only to our morality, though it includes our morality. We are a people who are foundationally set apart from the rest of the world. We are God's people. We are chosen to be then a royal, set-apart people for God's possession. And here is the crux of the whole sermon. Why? Why? Why are we a royal people who are set apart for God? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are set apart so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Don't miss how important that is. It's a really big deal. It reorients our entire religion. It gives us the telos for our religion. It gives us the, the end, the goal. It answers the question, what is all of this 
for? Why do I go to church? Why do I labor myself with the life that is involved with being a part of a church? Why do I read my Bible? Why, why do I pray? Why do I live a certain way? Why do I believe all of these things? What is all of this for? I would argue that we need to be reminded that our religion is for God's glory, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light, because the world is trying to sell us a religion that's not about that. Sometimes they'll even package it in Christian language. God wants to save you so that you can get to heaven one day, so that you can have a better family so that you can be a better father, better mother, so that you can have a better job, so that you can have a more stable financial situation. Now, some of these things may happen as byproducts of living God's way, like you're more likely to have a healthy marriage if Christ is at the center of your marriage. You're more likely to have a better financial situation if you understand the reality that everything God's given you is his and you steward it, right? You're more likely to be healthy in those ways. You will assuredly get to heaven one day because who Jesus has bought, no one can steal. But here's a paradox we cannot escape. A life that is about me will never fulfill me. A life that is about me will never fulfill me. Because underneath all of our, underneath much of our conflict and our tension is this underlying belief that if things were my way, this would be better. Fill in the blank. If this relationship were the way I think it should be, then these problems that exist would not be there. So I think I know the problems and I know how things are gonna look, right? We have a tendency to do this, to make all of life about me, my politics, right, my thinking about the way things should be. If things are as I think they should be, everything will be right, because surely I know best about how the world should be run. I would make the case that if my religion is about me and me making things the way I think they should be, then I am probably the object of my worship. If my life is a series of my own efforts to make things the way I think they should be, then I am probably the person I'm worshiping, and I have bad news, but good news. I cannot save me. I cannot save you, and you cannot save you. A life that is about me will never fulfill me. We begin to understand the essence of Christianity when we understand the centrality of God's glory. The gospel is the news of God's mighty works, both his activity in creation and the miracle of redemption in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We proclaim this message because this message is good news for all of us. God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is his doing, and this is our testimony. Notice the text says he's called us into his marvelous light. Not just into his light, but into his marvelous light. On October 26, 1879, Charles Spurgeon was preaching to his church on this text, and he said this, Suppose the case still of one born blind 
who had heard of a thing called light, but who could never imagine what it was like till a skillful oculist, I guess we would say optometrist, took away the film that was blinding him, and his eye was open so that he could perceive the light. It would be very difficult to describe all the emotions of one who had never enjoyed the light before, but certainly such a person would be full of wonder and amazement. It would be, indeed, marvelous light to him. Church, we have come from darkness into God's marvelous light. Now, verse 11, I think you could make the case, is sort of a transition for Peter's whole letter that we're not preaching through this morning, but he marks it off with addressing his audience. Beloved, in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that word when there is really important. It's not if. Keep your conduct among, you, among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that day of visitation could be the day of their salvation. It could be the day, uh, the ultimate salvation, right? The ultimate judgment where the Lord returns. Nonetheless, the meaning stays fixed. That when they see your good deeds. They will glorify God when he returns. So we should think of ourselves, according to this text, as members of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we should think of ourselves as sojourners and exiles. See, to be inside the life of God means to be outside the life of the world. Sojourners and exiles dwell in a land that is not theirs. A sojourner is not quite the same as an exile, but in both situations, the person in mind is someone who is not home. One scholar says the knowledge that they don't belong does not lead them to withdrawal, but take their standards of behavior, not from the culture in which they live, but from their home culture of heaven, so that their life always fits the place they're headed to, rather than the temporary lodging in this world. A sojourner and exile as we travel through this weary land, it's not that we just abstain from everything because it's temporary. That's a mistake many Christians, I think, have made. It's just that in all of our engagement with the world and culture and politics and all that we do, all of our engagement is, is cued off, right? We, we understand how to do it because we're taking cues from our home culture, and our home culture is God's kingdom. We're living into where we're going, not simply where we are. We aren't taking our cues for how to live, how to believe, what to love from culture. We take them from King Jesus. As sojourners and exiles, here comes the command from Peter, we abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why, we might ask, because, Peter would answer, they are waging war against your soul. In other words, if you forget that you are a sojourner and exile passing through a land that is not yours, a land that is not home, If you forget that, you'll be tempted to be distracted by it. 
You'll be tempted to just obey the passions of the flesh like everyone else is doing. You'll be tempted to lose your distinctiveness as one of those who live life God's way. And you began to look like everyone else. And that is so problematic because Peter's saying there is an enemy out there. There is an enemy around us who wants that very thing to happen. If you indulge your flesh, if you get distracted by the trappings of culture and the desires that it thinks, that it tries to instill in us, you will indulge them and they will kill you. Last time we were in India, there was some sort of Hindu festival going on. And we had to get from one side of town to the other side of town, and we called a rickshaw. And this little auto rickshaw is really made for, you know, a couple of people, but there are four of us Americans in there, and, and I am what an Indian would call healthy. Um, I was, me and Ryan, we, everywhere we went, they were like, you guys are very healthy. And we were like, thank you, you know? And then we're like, wait a minute. They didn't mean that as a compliment. So we're very healthy people. Uh, and so we're, we're crowded into the back of this rickshaw. Well, I'm in, I'm in the front, and the driver's sitting on my knee. You know, he's just like kind of looking at me, you know. And so I'm in the front, and the driver's sitting with me, and then they're all in the back, and, and, and Holly and Kristen are some, someone sitting on top of someone, I don't remember who, but we're driving through, and you just like see like huge float, right? This giant Hindu god thing, and then people driving around, and then fireworks will just go. You'll see someone just shooting fireworks off, and, and you smell the incense, and you're just overtaken by this, and you're driving through, and your rickshaw just going in and out of traffic, and it, traffic's completely stopped because there's a parade going on, you know, because it's a holiday. And so everyone's just having this big celebration and launching fireworks and lighting incense and, and praying and, and running and screaming and laughing and all of these things. And we're just like, you know, four white people just watching the whole thing happen. Just kind of driving by, just looking around like, what in the world? And that's kind of the picture that I have as I read this text. Like, we're just kind of passing through the, the celebration. I wouldn't take part in it because it's, it's not for me. Like in that moment, in that situation, I'm coming into it as, as a Christian, I'm coming into it as an American, I'm coming into it as a Westerner, I'm coming into it as so many things. And so I, I watch this thing happening, and it's not of no consequence because i got to get through the mess to get where I'm going. But I'm, I'm watching it happen, and I'm overtaken by the reality that none of this is happening for me. None of this is happening because of me. I'm not moved in any way to be like, let's go guys, let's join this parade, let's have a big time, because I have this foundational sort of unspoken subconscious understanding that this is all for somebody else. There was a sense that we wouldn't articulate and we wouldn't share of just we're not home. And I think that sense of we're not home is what Peter's talking about here. As we see things happening around, they're not of no consequence to us. They matter. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to carry their burdens, right? It's not that nothing matters. It's that as we walk through life, we have to be reminded. We have to remember that we're taking our cues from our home culture, our passport says kingdom of God. And that's the posture we must take as we pass through the world. Church, I remind you, 
this morning that we are sojourning in exile, pressing on till the day we see our Lord, until the day we're home. In verse 12, Peter anticipates the objections that we've already somewhat acknowledged. Keep your conduct honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In fact, if we understand the plight of Christians at this moment in history, we understand that abstaining from the fleshly desires, that not doing what everyone else was doing, would often be the very things that caused the pagans to despise Christians. There was a lot of conflict in the early church, about the early church. Early Christians were accused of many crimes. They were accused of practicing murder in their meetings. They were accused of practicing incest. Why do you think an outsider would think that Christians are practicing incest? We refer to each other as brothers and sisters. I often make a point when one of you has a baby to say, like, hey, it's Uncle Mason, Aunt Holly. When you're on the mission field, the Christians refer to each other in familial terms to help us remember that, like, we are a family. We're not a family by our own blood. We're a family by Christ's blood. And like any family, it might be dysfunctional at times, but we have to learn to love each other. And so hearing this familial language outside, people thought incest was happening inside those meetings. Christians were often accused of cannibalism in their secret meetings. Wonder why they were accused of cannibalism? Because they would say things like, eat this body and drink this blood, and people didn't understand the context of what they were talking about. They were accused of disturbing the peace of the empire, an accusation that's been levied against Christianity for many, many years, which is odd because in the next portion of the text, Peter will say in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, right? They're not being this subversive class of people who are trying to make everyone else's life harder. They're just being faithful to God, gathering in worship and making disciples of the nations. Emperor Nero said they were a class of people animated by a novel and dangerous superstition. They were very looked down upon by the smart, the wealthy, and the elite. Peter knows they're going to be hated. But Jesus has promised them as much. But Peter will urge them on towards a steady course of righteousness that eventually, even those levying the accusations against them, will have to approve of. Worship team, if you guys want to come on up as we work our way to a conclusion of the sermon. Here's my exhortation to us, church. As sojourners and exiles, stay the course. Stay the course. Keep on fighting. Keep pressing in to follow Jesus. Keep turning from sin. Keep repenting of sin. Keep believing the best in your neighbor. Keep loving people. Keep striving to have a tender heart when everything around you is trying to make your heart more and more calloused. Remember that we are a chosen race. We are a race of races. There is only a human race, church. And together we, black, white, Asian, American, European, rich, poor, 
wherever we come from socially, wherever we come from economically, wherever we come from racially, church, in Christ, we are one family. But even more intense than being one family, we are one body. And that is a testimony to the nations that look what this gospel message has done. As we so often say, the gospel, the message of Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection has taken superficially incompatible people, people who wouldn't get together for any other reason. It's taken superficially incompatible people and made them one. That's what our God does. And we, in our fullness, the collective we, are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Church, stay the course. We need each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to exhort each other. We need to pray for each other because the passions of the flesh are so, so tempting. They promise us so much and some days it sounds really, really good. And some days we get so distracted by all that's going on around us that we forget who we are. And we can begin to take our cues for life from culture instead of God church. Stay the course. While we journey, we have a meal we eat together. While we journey, we have a feast we regularly and frequently observe. And every time we observe it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we observe this meal, every time we observe this feast, we proclaim and participate in the story of God. Church, I said at the beginning, over these last few weeks and this week, I just want to remind us what is true and what is ultimate. And every time we take this meal, we are reminded of who we are. The world says you are fill in the blank. But as we come forward and as we partake of the body of Christ broken for us, and as we partake of the blood of Christ shed for us, we remember who we really are. We are heirs to the promise of Israel. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people of peoples for God's own possession. And we are sojourners and exiles in a foreign land. And as we journey through this land that is not ours, we live in such a way that even the people who levy accusations against us would see, man, their God is good. We live in such a way that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let us pray.
Father, forgive us when we take our cues for how to live from everyone around us. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for believing that constant lie that a life that will fulfill us will be a life that's all about us. Forgive us for believing the lie that a life that will fulfill us is a life where everything goes the way that we think it should. The church looks the way we think it should look. My family acts the way I think they should act. The government runs the way I think it should run. My friends do the things that I think they should do. And remind us, Lord, that we don't exist to exhort power over others. We don't exist to just go around and meet our felt needs like animals. We don't exist to just give in to the passions of the flesh and do whatever feels good in the moments, Lord. We exist for something far better. We exist for something far more fulfilling. We exist to bring you glory. We exist to show the world how great you are. And our religion, Lord, our relationship with you, everything about who we are proclaims the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, Lord. Help us be that light to the world around us. Help us understand that our good, our fulfillment, our peace is all tied up in our seeing and savoring your glory, Lord. And empower us by your spirit, Father, to pour ourselves out in service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.